Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Alan, on our last podcast, we took an in-depth look at Genesis, a fascinating book about God and beginnings. Today, we look at a book in the New Testament that also opens with the words, In the Beginning the book of John. Isn't that fascinating that they use the same three words to begin their book? So the link between the books is pretty evident right from the beginning. That's right. Well, in an earlier podcast, the overview of the New Testament, we touched briefly on the four Gospels. John, you mentioned, is very different than the other three. It is, incredibly so. The other three are called the Synoptic Gospels, and John is not part of that Synoptic tradition. There are many differences between them. You can tell just by a cursory reading of the of the Gospels. And John is very distinct. It's very, very different. The language is very simple. I love Martin Luther's quote when he said that, uh, never in my life have I read a book written in simpler words, but yet these words are inexpressible. Hmm. So it's a sublime book. It's a spiritual book. It's an evangelistic book. If, if ever... There is a book in the Bible that would convince you to become a Christian. It is the Gospel of John. Wow. It's an incredible book. So it is very different from the synoptics. You know, the synoptics were written for particular groups of people. You know, Ma- Matthew was writing to the Jews. Mark was writing to the Romans. Luke is writing to the, uh, to the Greeks. But John, is his, his audience is a universal audience. Oh. Um, he is writing just basically to a what we call maybe a universal unbeliever. And it's interesting the, how he goes about uh, writing his, his gospel. It, he never intends it to be a complete biography of Jesus. And he selects material that, that is often not recorded in the synoptics and, and really relate to the, more to the deity of Christ from his perspective, because he wants to convince his reader that Jesus, in fact, is the Christ. John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This only occurs in John's gospel. The raising of Lazarus is recorded in John, but not in the others. His high priestly prayer in chapter 17, uh, the confession of Thomas, you know, my Lord and my God, all these things are in John, but not recorded in in the other gospels. Hmm. What do we know about John? Ah, good question. We believe from a number of uh, different perspectives and sources that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he was one of the one of those closest to Jesus. Um, James, John, and Peter were the kind of triad, uh, trio of disciples that that were closest to Jesus. And so we we believe that this John who wrote the gospel was that John, and is described, you know, um, both at the end of the book, the end of the book in particular, as as an eyewitness. And that everything that he says is true. He was there. He saw it. He witnessed it. So, yeah, we're pretty convinced that uh, that's the John that we're talking about, Mm. the brother of James. You talked about at the beginning, you talked about his writing style is pretty simple. Simpler than the other Gospels? The other Gospels seem pretty simply written. Yeah, but I mean, (laughs) they are. But John uses a simplicity of language and style. That you don't find, for example, in the Apostle Paul's writing. If you contrast John John's epistles with Pauline epistles, I mean, the difference is day and night. Right. You know, the language is colorful. 
It's stark, it's real, it's simple, it's, uh, it's just lovely. And it contains far-reaching implications. Now, John's gospel, in fact, when he writes the gospel, he will often write at two different levels. He will write at what the ancient rabbis would call the peshat of the text, which means the clear, unadulterated, plain meaning of the text. Mm. Just, you know, it, it, it is what it is kind of thing. But John often has a deeper theological undertone that becomes evident the more you study the book. But, um, yeah, the other Gospels, you know, are pretty straightforward as well. But, but the simplicity and beauty of John's language is not found in the others. It seems less historical. It feels like it's more about personality and less about events. Am I missing the boat there? No, I think not. I mean, um, when you say something is historical, it depends what you mean, of course, by historical. Um, I think John is at pains to point out a lot of historical facts about Jesus. For example, when you come to the trials of Jesus, you know, John makes it very clear all the various improprieties that were taken that were against Hebrew custom in, in his trial. When it comes to the crucifixion, he, he dismisses it fairly quickly, actually. I mean, he just simply says, uh, and they crucified him uh, in chapter 19. But I, but I think the purpose behind John's gospel basically informs him as to what, how and what he writes, what he selects and how he presents it. Always with the understanding that he is basically writing a persuasive document. Mm. He wants, he wants to force upon the reader a decision that either they're going to believe or they're not going to believe. And so time and again, you know, he's writing with that kind of emphasis. And, and you have lots and lots of examples of it throughout the gospel where people are suggesting, you know, that, that they encounter Christ. And yes, I believe and, and others don't believe. So always there is this dichotomy between belief and unbelief. And John plays havoc with that, frankly. He, for example, omits a whole bunch of stuff that you might consider historical. He doesn't say anything about the childhood of Jesus. He doesn't talk about the preaching of John the baptizer. He, he excludes the Sermon on the Mount. The temptations in the desert are not in John's gospel. Um, the transfiguration is not there. Um, so he basically concentrates on the Judean ministry rather than the Galilean ministry. In fact, in many ways, he almost avoids the Galilean ministry and emphasizes the Judean ministry. So there are some historical events that would not be included, but that, that would not suggest in any state, way, state or form that it is not a historical book. Do you think that it's important then to have read the synoptics and then read John? Well, I, I, yeah, again, it depends what, what you know. What, what, you, what you want to experience. I mean, John's gospel is the evangelistic gospel. He, he is supremely the evangelist. Uh, he is the one who is trying to persuade you as a reader to believe in Jesus Christ. And he does it magnificently. Yeah. And in so many ways, it's the most incredible gospel. The others are writing also to persuade, but not in the in the sense. I mean, they're 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 writing from a a particular perspective to appeal, for example, to the Jewish mind or the Greek mind or the the Roman mind. Mm. John basically is simply the evangelist and is provoking the reader to believe. But the others have such 
rich backstory on on Jesus. And the backstory, I think, is helpful in understanding the person Jesus, which maybe is a benefit as you read John in in allowing John to convince you of the need for Christ in your life. Well, that's true. I mean, I would. I mean, I'm I'm not in any way s- suggesting that that John should be read on its own with no comparison with the, the synoptics. But it's hard to compare John with the synoptics mm-hmm. because it's so different. They write from a different bias, different perspective, a different purpose. So in that sense, yeah, they certainly complement John. And if that's what you're talking about, there's, yeah. you know, it, it, to get a fuller picture of Jesus, of course you want to read the, read the synoptics as well. But I don't want to lose the fact that while he may not give some of the background information, while he may omit some things that we would consider important, things we've just mentioned, I I think the reality, I mean, John writes so forcefully, so persuasively, so beautifully. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you take the high priestly prayer, for example, in chapter 17. There is nothing like that in all of Scripture as he prays for himself, and then he turns and prays for, for his disciples, and then he prays for us, the church. I mean, it's, an, it's a, one of the most glorious prayers in the entire scripture. Mm. Um, and the encounter between Nicodemus and, and Jesus, it would go down well in the movie industry, as you would probably <laughs> know being in that industry. And, and you've got uh, Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus, uh, you know, after the crucifixion and, and before the crucifixion, how they were men of, of status and they, they were trying to guard themselves and, you know, not, not lose their social standing and so forth. And yet after the crucifixion of Jesus, they come out and support this person, believing him to be the son of God. Hmm. I mean, it's great. I mean, the drama, the beauty of it. Um, there's nothing like John's gospel. <laughs> well, is it possible to read, inductively speaking, is it possible to really to read it outside the others? I think you have to read it outside the others. I think you have to consider John in terms of what he is trying to do and how he goes about doing it and how these 21 chapters fit together and flow together. I mean, it's a magnificent story as he unfolds. You know, I mean, I would say that the, 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 arguably there are two, maybe maybe three major divisions in the book. Up to chapter 12, you've got his ministry to the multitudes, including the seven miracles of the seven signs. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first 12 chapters basically is his ministry basically in Judea. And within that ministry, you have, you know, right from the get-go, you have this thing, you know, that we came to his own and his own received him not, but as many that received him to them, he gave power to become sons of God. Now, so you've got rejection and belief going hand in hand, and that runs through those those 12 chapters. And you have, in, from the beginning of chapter 5 then, uh, you have this growth of opposition, and the opposition is strenuous. I mean, they want to kill him. And so you have this dialectic going on between those who believe and those who reject, and the religious leaders are among those who reject and, and to the point that they want to kill him. And, and that reaches its final fruition on the cross, of course, the final rejection, which seems to be, you know, again, in, in John's terminology, seems to be the defeat of all that is good, but turns out to be the great uh, salvation for humankind. So that the, the evil is replaced with, with, with good. So this dialectic 
continues. And then you have at the end of chapter 12 or near the end of chapter 12, the turning point in the book mm. where, where you have basically it says that Jesus ceased to, to move among the people. Um, and from chapter 13 on then, it, it, this public ministry, this, this ministry to the multitudes became, becomes a ministry, a private ministry to the few. The turning point in chapter 12, is there a specific verse or verses, or is it the whole chapter? No, there are specific verses. Let me just quickly uh, see if I can uh, get them here. Verse 36, if I remember correctly. Um, so it says here, when Jesus had said this, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, yet they did not believe. It was that the word of the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report? So, basically, that was the turning point. He he concludes his public ministry in chapter thir- in, in chapter twelve, verse thirty-five, no, thirty-six, and then in thirty-six B, he begins his private ministry. So it's a it's a remarkable turning point. Mm. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, you know, with you know when, when we talk about high writer selects his material and and we also talk about the proportion that he gives to a particular event it's it's fascinating for me that the first 12 chapters cover the three years of his ministry especially in judea and the next five chapters from 13 through 17 cover just a few hours in the upper room and the walk towards gethsemane so obviously it is those five chapters 13 through 17 that John is eager to expound upon. And maybe in a moment we can get into that a little more carefully. And then you have, you have his, uh, what we call the farewell discourses um, in chapters 13 through uh, 16, and then 17, the high priestly prayer. And then in 18 through 21, you have the passion, of course. And in that passion, you have his arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, his resurrection, which is the ultimate sign, by the way, mm. the ultimate sign of his divinity, his deity. And then the appearances following that into chapter 21. So the the arc of the book of John, what would you say that is? I would say essentially that it, it, it begins with these marvelous statements, you know, in the beginning, uh, reflecting the beginning of the book of Exodus. So it takes us back to creation. In fact, it takes us beyond creation. It takes us to the very heart of God. And it says that that Jesus basically coexisted with the Father. And then you have a picture in those early chapters of that condescending love for sinful humankind. So Jesus Christ becomes God in the flesh in humankind. He's the Son of God. And John then is eager to point out through his public ministry in the first 12 chapters, through his private ministry in those five chapters, and in the final passion of of his death and resurrection, that Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God. Mm. And so that, and then then at the very end, John will say, you know, now then, considering all these things, will you believe? Mm. Powerful. It is, incredibly so. We've talked about differences between uh, the book of John and the Synoptic Gospels. Any similarities? You know, um, (laughs) you know, there really aren't that many. I mean, it's just it is so different. Um, 
And the more I look at it, the more I see the differences rather than the similarities. Of course, the similarity is about Jesus Christ. The similarity is about the events that you know, obviously John was aware of the synoptics. And that's maybe why he he didn't record some of the things in his gospel. Because he knew they were already recorded, which mm-hmm. takes you back to your point earlier that maybe it would be good to read John in the light of um of the synoptics, although I do want to suggest that John should not be considered on its own merit, and that's that would be my inductive approach to study John and what John is about. But it's interesting that um, you know, it, being acquainted with the, the synoptics, I think he has he has put things in that weren't there. The wedding in Cana of Galilee, for example, the conversation with Nicodemus, the uh, the discourse uh, following the feeding of the 5,000 about the living water and Abraham's seed and the story of the good shepherd and, and so on. So he's put those in because they weren't in the synoptics. And then the other ones that uh, that he didn't include because they were in the synoptics, such things as um, he doesn't tell any parables, for example. There are no parables. Uh, per se, demons are not cast out in John's gospel. There's no healing of lepers and so on. So in that sense, what he has done, I think, is because he's cognizant of what the synoptics were saying, he developed his own storyline that is distinct from theirs, including some things, but not not a whole bunch of things. For example, in the seven signs, the seven miracles of chapters 1 through 12, of those seven miracles, you know, changing water into wine, the the healing of the nobleman's son, the, the healing of the paralytic, the feeding of the 5,000, and so on. Only two of them are recorded outside his gospel. So that means all five of them were not in the synoptic gospels. And the only two that are included is the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. Hmm. So when you ask, you know, were there any similarities There are, of course, but they're kept to a minimum, maybe because he was aware of the writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, at at its core um, is believing, as you've you've mentioned. What exactly does he mean by believing, then? It's a great question, because obviously that's the main thrust of what he's trying to do. He wants his reader to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, he points out in many ways, and specifically, uh, that, that it involves two things. In, in, in chapter 8 and chapter 10, for example, it's obvious that believing for John engages the mind. And in the first chapter, it's obvious that it involves engaging the will. So if, in fact, John is suggesting that the believing involves both the mind and the will, then both become essential to understanding what he means by by believing. Let me give you an example, if if, if I can. Let's say I'm in New York City and I go to John F. Kennedy Airport and I'm standing on the observation tower and it's announced, you know, the flight, this flight is going to London. And, And someone turned to me and said, do you believe that that flight is going to London? And I would say, well, yeah, of course, yeah, I believe it's going to London. But it's a different kind of belief if I get on that plane to go to London, because when I commit myself to the plane, then it's not just a mind thing. It's also an exercise of the will. It's when I commit myself to that airplane that will take me to London, 
that I believe that I, when, you know, I, if I'm standing in the observation tower, the plane takes off and it goes to London. Where am I? I'm still in New York City. Right. There's no commitment. Right? No. So I think what John, what John is talking about is, is the, the marriage of the mind and the will. And in so doing is constantly bringing the reader to that point of decision and basically telling them there are consequences that evolve from that. If you don't believe in that sense, then you will perish. If you do commit yourself to this, then you will have eternal life. And, and the interesting thing is for John, there's no middle ground. It's either one or the other. And it reflects that, that cosmic struggle between good and evil, between light and darkness, between salvation and destruction. And in the midst of it all, there stands the cross, which as I've said before, you know, may appear, may give the appearance that evil has won the victory. But in fact, we come to understand as John begins to, to talk about the significance of the cross and the significance of the resurrection, that good eventually triumphs from that cross. Can, can you just go into that just a little bit more, the will? No, for example, uh, uh, the will is in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, but to all who received him, remember he said, he came into the world and the world knew him not. He came to his own, his own received him not. But as for all who received him, and it says, who believed, okay, mm-hmm. who believed in his name, to them he gave power to become the children of God. So that is a, a matter of the will. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Mm. And then over in chapter 8, if I might turn to that, um, you find, I think, in towards the end of the chapter, let's see if I can, um, you've got in verse 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So there's a sense there of the acquiescence of the mind. And you find it again in chapter, a reference in chapter 10, again near the end of that chapter. um, He says, um, if I'm not doing the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the father is in me. So again, it's an exercise, an intellectual exercise. You know, the, one, of the, one of the five witnesses that John points out to, uh, to substantiate his claim that Jesus is divine is the witness of Scripture and the witness of, of works, the works that Jesus did, witness to the fact that he was, that he was, fully, um, he was fully divine. Now, John, again, will extrapolate on, on the nature of Christ, both as being fully human and fully divine in a number of different ways. Uh, for example, um, he became flesh, he says in chapter one. Um, we, he, he points out that Jesus in chapter four, that he was that Jesus was weary, that he was thirsty. He grieved over the, the news of Lazarus, for example, and the fact that he died in chapter 19, all would suggest that Jesus was, was fully human. But at the same time, you know, when we talk about Jesus being the God-man, we don't say that half of him was God and half of him was man. We say he was fully God and he was fully man. So he was fully human being, a fully human being in the sense that he ate, he spoke, he walked, he talked, um, and so on. But also John is eager to point out that he's fully divine. 
the, the, the seven I ams, for example, um, and, and in particular, the reference when, when he says at one point, you know, before Abraham was, I am. Interesting, the tense there. He doesn't say I was, you know. So the I am, of course, is the name of, of God, the great I am. So when Jesus actually was claiming, when he says before Abraham was, I am, that was a, a very definite, distinct claim to deity. As was all the I am's, you know, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth and the life, I'm the, the true vine. And, and throughout, the, throughout the Gospels, you have these constant crucial affirmations. You know, years ago, I was traveling on an airplane and, and I sat beside a young woman who was uh, a devotee of um, a cult called the way. And she said that Jesus never claimed to be God. And, and so I said to her, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll give you half an hour to persuade me that that's the case. If you will give me five minutes <laughs> to persuade you that it is. And she said, that's okay. That's great. And she went, uh, she went into using all kinds of examples. And every time she pointed something out, I would simply, you know, I would say, well, uh, did you take this into consideration or this verse into consideration or whatever? But um, for the most part, I listened. And when she'd finished, I then said, now let me prove to you that he was in fact claiming to be uh, God. And at that point, she said, I don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I tried to press home the point anyway. Um, but no, they're, they're, these are very, very distinct claims that Jesus makes to be God. There can be no doubt that he was in fact claiming to be divine. Uh, and those people, you know, I think John is trying to direct so much attention to the reality of who Christ was, both human and divine. His resurrection, for example, John is eager to point out that it was a physical resurrection. Right. It wasn't some spirit that rose from the dead, you know, kind of thing. Uh, but John is very clear in so many ways, pointing out that this was a reality. Well, Alan, are there clues that we can see that would help us better grasp John's intent in telling his version of Jesus? Yes. What we have is a picture of a, of a cosmic God, not a God of the Jews, not a God of the Greeks, not a God of the Romans, but a cosmic God uh, who coexisted with Jesus Christ in the bosom of the Father, in his pre-incarnate glory, if you will. And that's why, I mean, again, you know, I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again. That's why John begins deliberately with the very words that Genesis begins with. It takes us right back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then what we have is an unfolding of that uh, picture of a pre-incarnate Jesus becoming God in the flesh. And basically these early chapters he begins to reveal himself. You know, you have the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee as he begins to widen the circles of his revelation, if you will. And then concurrent with that, you have this story of refusal, of opposition. That's the turning point, a point of cruciality. And that point of cruciality moves us then to the next stage. He basically gathers those who believe and he he comforts them and he assures them and he, he speaks to them of what it means to, to believe and, and, and the resources that are open to them in terms of an indwelling spirit and an empowering spirit and, 
And he talks to them about patterns of Christian living, you know, what it means to abide in the vine, what it means to be a servant, and the function of the Holy Spirit in, in all of this, to lead us to understand what it really means to believe. You then have, you know, this, this great high priestly prayers and, and just, and, and you see the heart of Jesus there as he opens his heart to his father and prays, not only for himself and his disciples, but for those who will one day be his followers. Those of us who live today, Jesus prayed for us in, in those closing verses, the, 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 the last seven verses of, of chapter um, 17. And then, then we move, of course, to the great finality of, of the cross and the resurrection. But, you know, the interesting thing even there, if I might press this further, you know, you have when Jesus dies, he dies uh, as king. He dies as, uh, as lamb and he dies as priest. I mean, it's amazing how uh, John unfolds these ideas. You know, Pilate says to him, are you a king? Um, and, and Jesus talks about his kingship. Uh, Pilate puts up on his, uh, his cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So in a sense, that cross becomes his coronation. His crucifixion becomes his coronation in a sense. Hmm. He dies not only as king, you know, the interesting thing also when Pilate asks the question, shall I crucify your king? Uh, you know, the, the amazing thing there for me, I, I think one of the most wretched verses in all of scripture is found there. Because the Bible has to do with the whole central theme of the Bible. We've talked about this in past podcasts. The central idea, the central motif, if you will, is the kingdom of God. So when then Pilate says to the crowd, shall I crucify your king? The anathema is that people cry back, we have no king but Caesar. Mm. Now that undid, that one statement undid their entire history. That was an anathema to God because God was supposed to be their king. So the idea of kingship runs through uh, this, this whole idea as well, as does the, the, the concept of Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, it's interesting that just like the Passover Lamb, not a bone was broken, that his blood was drained as the blood of the Lamb is drained at the moment of death. You know, there, there were so many similarities between his death and, and the slaughter of the lambs. And also as a priest, he was interceding for the people. So even in the crucifixion, you see, John was, was bringing to light and forcing the reader to understand that he really was the son of God. Let's talk about the themes uh, a little, just a little bit. Uh, is it possible to see these distinctive themes running through the gospel that we might ordinarily miss? Yeah, I think I've already alluded to the fact that, um, you know, the kingship is, runs right through. The very fact that he wore a crown of thorns, the fact that it was a purple robe placed upon him, all these are symbolic of his kingship. So what we have there is, um, is, is, is John pointing out that, in fact, the cross became his throne. Do you remember I said originally that, you know, there's the, the, there's the peshat of the text, the plain, unadulterated meaning, and the plain, unadulterated meaning that Jesus died on a cross. Yeah. But John is at pains to, to allude to certain other things that would indicate some deeper theological understanding. And that deeper theological understanding is that Jesus, in fact, was coronated on the, on the cross, that the cross became his throne, that he, in fact, was 
king of the Jews, but more he was king of the world. So there's that theme, of course, that runs through. And the other one that we've already alluded to is the fact that, you know, that Jesus is the God man. Right. That, that he's fully human and he's fully divine. And then, of course, you have the seven I am's that run through, which, again, are all used specifically because John points out that he's very specific in, in what he chooses to put in the gospel to prove his point. And the point he's trying to prove is that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the son of the living God. And so all those I am's are pointers towards the fact that he is divine. And also you have the seven signs, uh, seven miracles. I mean, we call them, they're often called the seven signs. Um, and, and they're called signs because they signify some spiritual truth. So you have the changing of the water into wine. I mean, just, you know, again, the Peshat would indicate that it was just a lovely, tender thing that he did. Um, he didn't need to do it. Uh, there was no expectation of him doing it. Except by his mother. Oh, beautifully <laughs> by his mother. You know, do whatever he tells you to do. I mean, I mean that, that, that can preach. That could preach. You know, that's, that's a beautiful text. But underlying it, you see, there were, there were it, John wants to point out specifically that there were six jars of water. See? And, and six, of course, the number, numbers in Scripture are very significant. The number uh, seven would indicate perfection or completion. So the fact that there were six, you see, and he points out that there were six. He didn't need to point out there were six. Why did he point out there were six? Because he's talking about the incompleteness of the law, you see, that, that only Jesus can rectify. So that's what I mean when I talk about John having these, what would simply be the, the surface truth and often a deeper theological uh, underpinning. So, so these would be some of the themes that would, that would run through the entire book, all used for the one express purpose. I'm writing these things, says, says John. I'm writing these things for a purpose. No other book is so, so clearly defines their purpose as does this gospel. And I know other, other books do define their purpose. Um, Luke, for example, in, in, in both his gospel and in Acts of the Apostles, points out the, the, why he's writing. But none are as specific as John uh, these things I'm writing in order, he says, that you might believe. And the consequence of your believing is that, that you will have life in his name. Alan, when you talk about the book of John, you, you speak about how universal it is. Um, how important is the book of John to the ministry of The Word is Out and reaching people of all nations? Well, well you know, as you, as you well know, The Word is Out reaches uh, countries across uh, several continents, um, so we train pastors in Africa, Asia, and so on. And, and because this is the evangelistic gospel, because this is the, um, you know, if, if there is a book in the Bible that would persuade you to become a Christian, the gospel of John is it. There is no other book quite like it in that sense. And so if the church is going to live out its message to the world, to, to an unbelieving world, then it part of its arsenal, one of the most important aspects of its arsenal must be the gospel of John. And therefore, to properly understand it, to properly proclaim it, then yes, that's what we do at The Word of Sight. Uh, we help people understand the book as best as possible. Um, so in that sense, you know, the church then becomes better equipped in the proclamation of the gospel so that people will in fact come to faith through Jesus Christ. There's a whole world out there needing to hear the gospel of John. 
he takes them right to a point of decision, especially in the closing part of the book. He talks about Jesus as the great revelation of God and all the testimonies throughout the book that relate to him, both testimonies and witnesses, John the baptizer, Nicodemus, uh, Thomas in the upper room, Peter's confession, all these things, and then the argument for belief that he points out. So basically, he forces the the reader to a place where, where we need to come to, A, acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in need of, of a savior, B, that we believe in Jesus Christ who died for us, both in terms of mind and will, and C, we commit ourselves uh, to him. So John is very eager to get the reader to that point, and the church then needs to be able to articulate that as best they possibly can. You know, people around the world don't want to hear blessed little thoughts, or they don't want to hear people's opinions of this and that. If this is, in fact, God's word, they want, to, they want to hear what God is saying. And so we at The Word Is Out are training our pastors and church leaders to understand God's word in order that they may properly proclaim it. And with that, stay tuned for future podcasts of The Word Is Out as we continue to go book by book in search of truth and understanding inside of God's word. Next, we'll talk about one of my favorite books, Ecclesiastes. One of my favorite books also. (laughs) It's a great book. Give us a tease. Well, basically, it searches the basic question of life. What is the meaning of life? Is there a meaning to life? I mean, it's the question that people have articulated since the beginning of time. Why am I here? What is life all about? Does life make any sense? And philosophers and sages for centuries have tried to answer the question. I believe that this book comes closest to answering it than any other piece of literature. Mm. And I believe it does answer it. So we'll look look forward to that. Yes. Well, you've been listening to The Word Is Out, a podcast on a mission featuring Dr. Alan Meenan. If you'd like to know more about The Word Is Out, visit us online at www.thewordisout.com. You can also keep up to date through our Facebook page. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.